Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. From time to time, we like to have a history lesson here on the On The Tape podcast. So if you indulge me, Dan and Danny, for just a minute, I promise I'm going to take us down memory lane. Wolves were the bane of the existence in the 19th century out west. As a matter of fact, the U.S. government paid ranchers and farmers to eradicate, to kill the wolves. As late as the 1960s, these were going on. The problem is history is littered with disastrous outcome born of good intentions. And you know what we learned? Wolves are a natural part of the ecosystem. We need wolves to be in Yellowstone because certain things thrive when they're there. Somewhat counterintuitive. Why do I bring that up? Same thing happened with forest fires. The U.S. Forestry Service was born out of the great Peshtigo fire in Wisconsin. By the way, I did get my ass kicked in Wisconsin once for you movie fans out there. And they decided that, you know what, we can eradicate forest fires. And by doing so, they were successful. What they learned is forest fires are a natural part of the cycle and the environment. You need old trees to burn down for new trees to grow. Now, I'm sure you're asking yourself, why the F is Guy bringing this up? Well, right before our very eyes, Danny Moses and Dan Nathan, we're seeing a disastrous outcome born of good intentions. And that disastrous outcome is inflation out of control, fueled by a Federal Reserve that has been extraordinarily accommodative, Danny Moses, for the last 13 years. Taper has effectively ended. It has ended. I think we'll get the official word from the Fed when they come out next Wednesday. So the Fed no longer has your back. They're no longer buying treasury bonds or mortgage-backed securities at the moment. Remember, it was $120 billion before they started to unwind it. They took down 15, then 30, then 60. And so we're going to start living in a world <laughs> without the Fed. And we haven't had to deal with that. No Robinhood trader has to deal with that since their average age is 31. We've been pumping money in the system for some time. So be interesting to what this thing looks like without it. By the way, as we're approving new bills in Washington, great. Someone's got to fund this. So it's amazing when the Fed's not buying treasuries, what treasury auctions may look like in the future. And it's a little scary when you combine it with the CPI print, which happened today. You mentioned the Robinhood trader. We have had periods where the Fed in the last 10 years, they were not buying bonds. They were not doing quantitative easing and they were actually raising interest rates. And we did have some volatility in around that. If you think back to 2015, 2016, I think there were a couple peak to trough declines in the S&P 500 of 20% in that post QE period. And then obviously in 2018, and we've talked about that a whole heck of a lot when the Fed were mechanically just raising interest rates, what, 25 basis points every other meeting or something like that. And we also had in Q4 of 2018, there was no Fed put until there was when the S&P dropped 20% from October to Christmas Eve or so, Guy Dami. So listen, we're in the throes of that equity market sell. The NASDAQ was down 20% at one point from those highs in late November. And the S&P, I think at its lows, was down, what, 12 13% or something just this week. By the way, you are listening to the On The Tape podcast. Hopefully, you're getting it from your favorite podcast store. I know which one mine is. I am Guy Adami. That was Dan Nathan. And of course, those dulcet tones were those of Danny Moses. On this broadcast, we'll be talking about 
the market that is, the market that we think is coming, and all things in between, folks, the fact that the Federal Reserve has effectively changed its course. And why? Well, earlier this week, we saw a CPI print, Danny Moses, of 7.9%. And I would submit, and I'm going to get added left and right, if you really wanted to measure inflation correctly, it's probably twice that. And oh, by the way, Danny Moses doesn't do what we call a rip off the tape. Or if you want to make it an acronym or a homonym or a synonym, we call that ROT. And we're also going to be joined by the great Ben Callow of R.W. Baird. So as we get into it today, the markets are clearly under pressure. Now, people, Danny, will point to the situation with Russia and Ukraine. I totally get it. Clearly, that's not positive for the market. But as Dan said earlier, the seeds were sown long before, and I think they were sown in late November to quote a, what is that, Counting Crows song, Dan, Nathan? Mr. Joe. Danny, can you sing that? You know what they need to do in Omaha? They need to start planting a lot more crops because we're going to need them. But can I make a comment about Dan's comment in his opening comments there? Dan, I agree that the Fed has had fits and starts, but let's be clear. Since the financial crisis, they've been there in various programs in various ways. But this time, because inflation is running so hot, they don't have the ability. I think that security blanket is being pulled off completely. So this is the first time, I should say, not that they've tried to raise rates. That never ends well. Now that they try to pull some liquidity out of the market, that didn't end well. We're entering a time now where they have to raise rates. And I'll say this, I was shocked, I'm still a little shocked, that Fed Fund futures are now pricing back in six and a half to seven rate hikes this year. And let me just say this, I'm not even bearish anymore about the market. I'm actually scared. I'm actually nervous. Wait a second. Slow down. That's an important distinction because you, this is literally months ago, you said you were the most bearish you've ever been. And now you've gone from the most bearish you've ever been to scared, which is a standard deviation from the most bearish. To me, when you're scared, what should we be? I'm now freaking terrified. I'm just a little bit frozen here. And it started to think about something we talked about on one of our podcasts or one of the shows that where do you put your money? We were talking to Ned on Breaking Even about where to put your money. And as I was saying it, I realized if you go to cash, you're losing 15% because the true read of inflation guy is right. It's up in the mid-teens mm-hmm. right now. So that's what's been forcing people to stay in the S&P a little bit. I get it. Some of these healthy companies with very good dividends and so forth. And we all know the irony here is that the 10-year yield should already be at seven and the two-year yield should already be at four in a perfect world. I'm saying if it was matching up to what the economic picture looked like, but it doesn't. So we're so offsides in every category. And Guy, you said it in the opening today. The Fed has caused a lot of this, and it's going to be a very rough burn back through the atmosphere. And I don't know where to hide, guys. I'm really serious. I see the dollar going up. I see things that we've seen pieces of from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and even in the 2010 era. And they're all little piece of each of those crises all coming into one. And I'm scared. Yeah. And we're not suggesting none of us are. None of us ever suggested to go all to cash. I mean, we wouldn't say that. That's just not right of us to do that. We don't want people to go all cash. And Danny pointed out the reasons why you don't want to do that. But what we've tried to do over the last year and couple months is to show people that, hey, when valuations didn't matter, we pointed that out. Valuations have mattered now for the last four and a half, five months for some stocks longer than that. And that doesn't resolve itself, Dan Nathan, quickly either. I will tell you, we've looked at some of these names. You can list the names, names like Shopify, names like DocuSign, where nobody cared about valuations on the way up. When they start to care, these stocks can overshoot to the downside. Dan, you've said it yourself. Amazon in its early days went down 90 percent. 
We can talk about the Fed done with QE and raising interest rates, and you can tell me where the CME Fed Fund tracker is as far as how many rate hikes we're going to get this year and where Fed funds are going to be. But at the end of the day, with inflation where it is and where real rates are, we're still in negative territory. So that is supportive, I guess, of equity values, because if you can't figure out where to put your money, if you're just going to tell me that cash is trash, people are still going to find places to put money. I think this week was really interesting though, as far as the stock market, if you're looking for cues, we saw banks get absolutely obliterated. And I think it's important to note that even like a Citibank that has come out and quantify what their exposure is to what might be, let's say, a Russian default or something like that, the stock is literally trading at 52-week lows. It's blown through the lows made earlier in this week. If you look at home builders, home builders are pricing in an environment where even though we had the 30-year mortgage rate move higher as the 10-year and the two-year have moved higher and expectations for Fed hikes to increase, Home builders act horribly. There's a lot of things in the market that just don't make a whole heck of a lot of sense to me. And to your point, Danny, you don't know where to put money. Bitcoin's not working. Bitcoin should be working in this environment, should it? It's never stood the test of a real cycle. Yes, it's been around for several years, but in a real cycle, the talk about how it's inflation-proof, the store of value. People are now excited that the government's recognizing it and it's going to regulate it. Say what you want, but that's a hypocrisy. The whole idea of Bitcoin was that the government couldn't touch it. So celebrating regulation, which, by the way, I don't think is a bad thing, but it does go against the whole fundamental belief in crypto in the first yeah, place. Yeah, but so- you, you know what's funny, Danny? I had Meltem Demur. She's been on her podcast with us. She was on OK Computer with me on Wednesday. You can check that in your podcast stores. There are people, and a lot of these Bitcoin people have moved on by the idea that it's a digital gold, a store of value in a way, which I think is really interesting because that was a major, major pillar of the bull case for Bitcoin in a way. And so the whole idea is if central banks globally were going to obliterate your money, you have to find a place that it can't be regulated. It's this immutable blockchain situation. So to me, I think it's kind of interesting that it's not working at a time where the highest inflation readings in 40 years, this is when it should be working and it's not. It's interesting to me. I want to just drill down on banks for a second. JP Morgan made an all-time high, I think it was in October, of 172 and change. 172.96 for you playing our home game. That stock made a 52-week low. As a matter of fact, it traded the levels we last saw in January of 2021, 127 and change, bounced slightly. It's back on its heels again. What is that telling you? Oh, I'll tell you what it tells me, a couple things. tells me that JP Morgan is not impervious from people being concerned about valuations. And we talk about it all the time. For banks, it's not to me price to earnings. It's price to tangible book. And at a certain point, at its zenith, JP Morgan was trading north of two and a half times tangible book levels that banks hadn't traded since pre economic crisis in 08, 09. Didn't make a lot of sense. Now people are coming to that realization. But Citibank, which is still a $100 billion bank, is trading like there's some real problems out there. Now you're talking about a stock that's trading at about 70% of its tangible book. Clearly, they have exposure in Europe. And clearly, Europe's got a problem here. So Danny, not even banks are impervious to this. So again, to your earlier point, where do you go? And I'm not sure I know the answers. I'll tell you where people have gone until recently comes in the form of Apple, because I think people have been fleeing the broader market and trying to find some semblance of safety, and they think some perceived safety in Apple. But I got to tell you, Dan Nathan talks about this all the time. At 27 times earnings for a company that's not growing nearly at levels that are commensurate with that, Apple's proven to be not a safe haven either. I'm going to let Dan, talk about Apple in a second, but let me address your Citigroup. You guys asked me three to four months ago, 
why is Citigroup trade like it does? Why is it at such a discount? And I said to you guys, because they have the most international exposure. And we all said to each other at the time that the world was underpricing geopolitical risk. But maybe these bank investors weren't. Maybe they were discerning between a Wells Fargo, Bank America, and a Citigroup. That's one. Two, there's something called VAR, value at risk. So not to put people to sleep, but this is the tap on the shoulder you get on the trading desk. And this is what's been going on for the last two weeks. Hey, guy, do we have any weed exposure through any credit lines that you know of? No, we're good there. Okay, good. I'll be back in about an hour. Hey, guy, do we have any nickel exposure? We got a little nickel exposure. So what happens is they just turn up the volume on the VAR, and what that does is it makes the whole bank take their book down, so whatever exposures they may have. So the whole market was underpricing risk in general. We've lived in this. It wasn't just the retail investor that's consumed with the Fed having their back. Let's not kid ourselves. Wall Street was also getting used to it. Well, that has changed. You can look at the VIX. Yes, it's coming in a little bit. It's still elevated here in the 30s. Look at the chart on the VIX. It has been elevated now. Probably this is the longest that it's been up here mm-hmm. without really pulling back in a long time. And every day that that goes by, it's one thing to try to figure out how to model a company. Banks are different. Is this company pulling out of Russia? Are they doing business in Ukraine? Where do they make their product? Where do they sell their product? That's what's scaring me right now is there's no sure thing right now. And normally there's somewhere to go run and hide. The difference this time with the VIX, Danny, is, as you've mentioned, for a period of time now, we've been elevated above 30. Now, the last couple of market sell-offs, and when I say couple, it's probably more like a few. We've seen the VIX spike to 38, 39. At one point, I think you saw a VIX at 40. But by a day or two later, literally, it was back in the mid-20s. It's not happening this time. So clearly, something's happening in the form of the volatility index. By the way, a 32 handle on the VIX, and Dan can speak to this, you're talking about one and a half, two percent moves in the broader market every single day, which we've effectively been seeing. So the moves are obviously exacerbated to both the upside and the downside. And what does that mean? Well, you're going to see huge moves to the downside, followed by these mind-numbing rips to the upside. And that's called negative volatility. And I'm not looking to make people's eyes glaze over as well, Danny Moses. But I'll say this. Don't underestimate what's going on here. Liz Young said it months ago. I think we've all said it collectively. There's a paradigm shift going on in the market. It took place in November when the Fed reversed course. Now you're in a market where you need to be selling markets to the upside and just understanding that the moves to the downside are going to be there. They're not going away anytime soon. I'll say this quickly. Until the VIX gets back down to a low 20s handle, we are not out of the woods. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. We've gotten a couple times over the last couple months, VIX above 35. And what's different this time around right now, to me, we're recording this Thursday into the close. And obviously, the market has taken some cues from maybe the potential for a de-escalation in the situation in Ukraine. On Wednesday, we had that face ripper. The S&P was up nearly 3%. The NASDAQ was up 3.5%. We've mentioned this on many occasions in the sell-offs, other than that one day in late January, that one day in late February, that's where you had those VIX spikes, and then you had those reversals in the stock market, the stock market sell-off has felt really orderly. But here we are right now, and I know, Danny, you're going to talk a little bit about the Fed meeting next week. We have a 10-year U.S. Treasury yield back above 2%. It was just at 1.65 a few days ago. You have a VIX that, like you guys have said, have a 30 handle on it, and you have a dollar that's rallying. You have crude oil that's higher. And if the Fed is actually going to remain hawkish, if there's any expectation that the Fed is going to say we're one and done, that's not happening. 
And so that's what's really the problem for the stock market. And there's still pockets of the stock market. I don't know if you guys caught this here. Zoom, which was a stock that traded near $600, almost traded $100 today. So some of those names are not done going down. We talked about Snowflake a little bit. There's a stock that's still trading north of 20 times sales or so. There's more room to go there. And I'll just say just the bow on it with the Apple, we're trying to make that sound expensive at 26 times sales relative to its growth. I don't know if you guys caught this on Thursday afternoon. At one point, this stock was down 4%. So that's the one that we haven't seen really give it up yet. And then the other one, Danny, I know we spent some time talking with Ben Callow about Tesla and we really hammered him and he held in there. But man, oh man, that thing looks like it wants to go back towards 700. I just mentioned this real quick, Danny. As we're taping this, baseball just announced the strike is over. They'll be back April 7th. So there's the good news. So if you think we're all doom and gloom, we're not, number one. But Dan, you mentioned this, and I've been talking about this, I want to say literally for the last two years. I'm sure people get tired of hearing it, but you mentioned it, Dan. Bond volatility should not be nearly what it is. It's extraordinary if you think about it. Dan just said, 10-year yields at one point this week traded with a 165 handle, and as we're doing this, they're north of 2%. It's mind-numbing. One of the mandates of this genius central bank, Federal Reserve, is stable price as well. I don't know what they're thinking, but there are no stable prices in what should be the most stable asset in the history of mankind. Remember I mentioned several months ago about something called the MOVE index, the M-O-V-E. Can't really see trade and no one really trades it, but it's a great proxy for volatility in the bond market itself. At the time, I think it was around 60 or 70. I just said something to keep an eye on just so you can understand what's going on. It hit 140 in the last few days. It's at 111 right now. It's up 100% in the last six months. Again, sure it's not a perfect correlation, but it's something just to watch. And that describes everything. But here's the thing. When I see the shit and I say shit like Bed Bath & Beyond on Monday, what happened in pre-market? That tells me we are nowhere near the bottom. And what happened on Monday? Ryan Cohen, the chairman of GameStop, decided to take a stake in Bed Bath & Beyond. Great. He can do that if he wants. And people just assumed at that point he's going to become an activist and invoke change. And I guess like people want him to do on GameStop, it won't be any more retail fronts. It'll just be selling stuff online whatever, stock went to 35 pre-market. We're back to 20 bucks. When I see that, and I'll say it again, that shit happened. It bothers me, not because I don't want people to make money because everybody lost money on that because they were chasing it all the way up and then sold it at the lows that day. It just tells me that we're not at a place yet where the market's going to make sense. And those are the things that I'm looking for. I want stocks to stop going up on dumb announcements like that. Then I'll know. That was the sign in 2001 and 2002 that we knew we were close to the bottom and we're just not there yet. Let me just say this, back to the banks for a second. There will be blowups. I don't think the banks are in jeopardy, but we have not yet begun to see the margin calls that are going on right now that are causing these moves in these commodities that we are seeing. Trust me, that's going to happen. Is it going to take these banks down? No, but that's why it's sell first and ask questions later because we've seen enough of this with the banks. So what can the Fed do next week? We can get into the Fed right now, Guy, if you want to talk about it. I'm happy to go there, but I just think we're in for the sustained period of volatility, and I don't believe that traders are ready for it. I don't think there's anything they can do. I think they realized long ago that transitory, they said it, they were going to retire the word. They saw the numbers. I said this for years as well. In terms of inflation, they were begging for inflation. They, again, being our Federal Reserve. Well, be careful what you wish for because you're going to get it. Now they got it in spades, and I am telling you, they can't control it. I don't care what they do. 25 basis points, 50 basis points, no. They have to probably hike eight to 10 times before it even makes a dent in what they've created. 
In terms of banks, I'm with you. There's going to be a huge blow up. We talk about standard deviation moves from time to time in the market. Typically in the equity markets, we'll talk about a two or a three standard deviation move like it's a big deal. And it is a big deal. Historically, that's a big deal. Danny, we saw a 30 3-0 standard deviation move in the nickel market. If anybody tells you they've seen that before, they're lying. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. Now, why are we mentioning nickel? It's not particularly important. It's important to Elon Musk and a lot of these auto manufacturers. I'll tell you right out. It's a really important base metal that nobody wants to talk about because somebody out there or some group of people out there are absolutely blowing up. There's huge systemic risk around that. And part of the city move might be on the back of that, Danny Moses. The London Metal Exchange, the LME, has been around for 145 years. It's one of the oldest exchanges in the world. So what's happened now is this. Russia produces 17% of the world's high-grade nickel, right? So obviously there'd be a reason that you wouldn't be able to get the nickel out, so it should go higher. Nickel has gone from 20,000 a ton in January, right at the beginning of this crisis in Ukraine, it was 25,000 a ton. It touched over 100,000 a ton. It set around 50,000, except the LME has halted trading for the mm-hmm. last two days, resumed trading on Friday. To your point, Guy, what happened? The largest nickel producer in the world, Xinjiang, and I'm sure I ruined that name, they're experiencing billions in losses, and it's controlled by a billionaire. And he has come out and said he's supposedly down at least $2 billion, It's probably $3 billion. I think he's short around 100,000 tons or something like that. Don't quote me on that. But on a mark-to-market basis, getting killed. He says he's not going to cover. So Chinese Construction Bank and a bunch of these banks, he's saying he's getting loans from. We'll see what happens. But LME shuts down trading on nickel. What does that tell you? If you're not prepared for something like this, you're literally one of the oldest exchanges in the world. You specialize in this and you have to shut trading. That's scary to me. So yes, somebody is wearing that and it's not just this Chinese former billionaire. We're seeing volatility in currencies. We're seeing volatility in the bond market. We're seeing volatility in the commodity market and not just the ones we're talking about. The volatility in the crude oil market has been epic as well, but natural gas and heating oil and gasoline and wheat, soybeans, corn, all of those things, aluminum, copper, out of control. Again, you have to ask yourself, at what point is it going to manifest itself in a meaningful way in the equity market? And I think we're right there, especially when you back out of Federal Reserve, which has been dampening volatility for the last 13 years. I would submit one of the unintended or intended consequences of the largesse of the Federal Reserve has been to tamp down volatility. It's been extraordinarily successful. Why? Because equity investors have come to realize the Fed has their back and there's no reason to buy derivatives, to buy option protection. As a matter of fact, it makes sense to sell volatility. Guess what, folks? We're on the other end of that mountain now. We have this Fed meeting next week. And I don't know about you guys. One of the mistakes that I've made routinely over the years in a period where I'm really bearish and then market starts coming around to it and we see some downward volatility and sentiment readings are getting really hot. And then you have the Fed meeting here and you think you know what's going to happen and you convince yourself that you see no real positive outcome. Well, then you get that face ripper, that multi-day sort of thing. How do you think people who are positioned bearishly into the meeting next week, Danny, are going to get it wrong? When you say positioned bearishly, are you? Let's say stock market. This week, for instance, we saw that dollar move. We saw the rate move. And we obviously saw this crazy move in crude. Let's just say the stock market. Let's just say you're convinced that you think that no matter what the Fed's going to do, stocks are going lower. What would that mean? Right now, it means that commodities go higher, dollar goes higher, rates go higher. That should mean that stocks go lower. For sure. And listen, we know that these central banks around the globe coordinate with each other. And it's not a coincidence that the ECB came out today and said it will end its bond buying program in the third quarter. They brought that forward because 
the dollar is going to run away here. The euro is going to be at parity soon. Euro, I think, is sitting here at 109. So Fed needs a little bit of cover. So I'm sure they talk to each other on that. But Dan, here's the thing. He already said in his testimony in front of the House and the Senate last week that he's going to take a look. They're going to raise one. So he basically said, I'm not going 50. I'm going 25. So we know that it's 25, although I will say it's creeping up a little bit, three or 4% chance of 50, but I don't see that happening. He will say the world events, this, that, and the other, we're going to wait and see. We have two choices right there. If he comes out and he does not show strength or says that he's going to continue to raise to fight inflation and that's his number one priority right now, whatever, I actually think that might be better for the market, Dan, than him trying to say, oh, we're going to wait and see and see what happens. Because whatever shred of credibility that they have, they need to maintain. Because I just told you, the market's already pricing in six to seven. That's basically every single meeting. So we're going to get something called the dot plot, which we Hmm. talked about more than a year ago. That's quarterly. That's basically all the Fed governors and whoever that are on that sheet and they give what they think their predictions are for where fed funds will be in 22 23 and i think even out to 2024 people are expecting that to move and i guess dan if you're asking me where's the one area that will be potentially a surprise or if you want to say somewhat dovish it'll be that the dot plot doesn't move as high as people think that it will and what i take that to mean is that as the fed starts raising rates there's certainly people that are at the fed that believe the economy which may already be slowing and it is will slow to a point that inflation will come in and the Fed's going to have to at least pause for a little bit. So a lot in there, Dan, there's so much to take away, but the bottom line is this. Inflation's not going away anytime soon. Situation in Ukraine exacerbated all of it. It is already having a demand destruction effect. It's already happening. You're starting to see less miles driven that quickly. It's happening. So as Guy says, the cure for higher oil is higher oil. We just saw what that means. It ran up to 130, back down to 110. There's a lot in there. I don't know if I answered your question, Dan, but... My point is, I'm convinced there's nothing the Fed can do or say that helps stocks in an intermediate term basis. But there is something that they can do or say that we're not pricing that could cause a 5% rally in the S&P 500 and a little bit more in the NASDAQ. Why is that? Because we can't think of the thing that they could do to do that. And so I think Wednesday's rally, normally, I would have loved to have seen a follow through in another 2 or 3% higher after that 4% rally reversal off of the lows, and then you'd lay back into shorts. But to me, going into that meeting, if we are down near the Feb lows and the Jan lows, that sets up as a very dangerous situation for those who are convinced the market goes solar. That's what I'm saying. I will give you one dovish piece because I'm still a believer that they're not going to start to unwind the balance sheet completely. Yes, they finished the taper here. Everybody's wondering, when are you going to start to actually not reinvest the runoff, right. the proceeds? That could be the one thing that they say, we're going to take our time and we're going to evaluate later. So if you're looking for something dovish, that's what it would be. And does the stock market rally on that? Probably, depending on the setup into it. So yes, but I'm still scared. No, and you're scared for good reason. Now other people will say, listen, you guys, you're missing the whole picture. Markets are not going down. The credit markets are still fine. They haven't seized up. Okay, truth. Things are starting to get a little dicey on the credit side. And we've mentioned this a number of times. And we were talking about this before anybody started talking about it. If you have one thing on your screen, it should be, again, my opinion, the HYG. That's the high-yield corporate bond ETF and rarely moves, but when it moves, it typically is the precursor of something. If you go back and look over the last 15, 20 years, the times that it moved and what the broader market has done, either in relation prior to or in the back half of, it's pretty scary stuff. And I will tell you, as we're sitting here today, the HYG made another new 52-week low, albeit only, I don't know, 9 or 10% off its recent high. doesn't matter. That's turning lower, Danny Moses. I know that's something you watch. And again, 
Credit markets, maybe they're the last to go. I don't know, but there's something brewing in that world as well. Yeah, so the HYG is effectively the arc asset of the bond world, meaning they're sitting on a lot of bonds. They're good at the top. Start looking at the HYG components at the bottom. I don't have it up in front of me, but there's some that are just unsellable. So what do you do when you get redemptions in a fixed income ETF, which is horrendous to start with? You sell the best stuff because you can't sell the crap. And that's the same thing. So you're stuck in a vehicle that never should have existed because there is a duration mismatch between being able to buy an ETF in a second and a bond that's supposed to be out there for long-term duration. So it's just been great because, again, back to what the Fed has been doing and pumping money into the system. The Fed's got your back. The Fed freaking bought the HYG. That's what they were Mm -hmm. buying when this whole COVID started back in the spring of 2020. So again, a painful unwind. What could the Fed do months from now as credit spreads are widening and and I'm sitting in a hole somewhere (laughs) scared? They'll do something like, oh, we're thinking about buying some stuff in the credit world, something like that. Who knows? We're going to find out. And listen, I'm sure that people out there are now saying, you guys are always doom and gloom and you're always negative. Well, first of all, that's patently false. We're not. But I also tell you what we're not. We're not a bunch of asshole cheerleaders that basically are rooting for the market every day. I'm not rooting for anything. I root for people to be healthy, people to be happy. I root for cool things like that. I don't root for against the market. We try to tell folks what we see and what we think is going to happen. And by the way, to a large extent, we've done a pretty effing good job over the last six to nine months of doing that. So before we get to your rip off the tape, I just want to tell you one thing. The sun will also shine in the morning. We will get through this, but there's going to be some pain along the way, and I think we're in the early innings of it. With that said, we're going to have Ben Callow on. I just want to tease that. But Danny, as we like to say, now's your opportunity to do something that we call rot or rip off the tape. Please, Danny Moses. I'm a Wall Street guy. I'm a former Wall Street guy. I'm a champion of capitalism. I had a lot of fun when I was on the street, but there's a lot of bad actors, and people get away with a lot. And I can understand why... The common retail investor gets upset at certain times. It seems unfair out there. Well, something happened here in the last few days that, to me, brings that to the forefront. So what happened? If you guys remember, Microsoft bought Activision in January of this year. Activision was embattled because they had issues with leadership, Kodak, a lot of sexual harassment claims and beyond at the company. And Microsoft took advantage and bought the company. So four days before that announcement, I believe that announcement was on, I think, January 18th. Barry Diller, David Geffen, who must be a savvy investor, and Alex von Furstenberg, who I think is Diane Furstenberg's son, who Barry Diller is married to, decided to buy $108 million of call options on Activision. They didn't do it in the listed exchange. They did it over the counter with J.P. Morgan. Why would they do that? It's a big bet, right? But they bought 40 strike calls. They had to make 40 strike calls for them effectively when the stock was trading at 60. They paid $26 for it, so $6 premium that goes out to January 2023. It's $108 million that they spent on call options. So maybe they're thinking to themselves, all right, how can I disguise this? Well, why is it a coincidence? Because Barry Diller's on the board with Kodak until Kodak stepped down a few days before this announcement, by the way, to focus on the business, I guess, how they're going to sell, how they're going to turn everything over to Microsoft. So the Department of Justice is now investigating from this trade on January 14th. JP Morgan was forced to report it because they're under the microscope of the Fed for many other things, mm-hmm. but I think they're reporting it because... They didn't hedge out their risk completely, and they were obviously got taken. How much logic does it take to put together that these two guys serve on a board together? We know that Activision was a mismanaged company. I don't know any of these guys personally, but are they going to get away with this? Probably. Diller came out and said, quote, it was simply a lucky bet. We acted on no information of any kind from anyone. It's one of those coincidences. Well, I don't believe in that coincidence. And this is the type of shit 
If he gets away with this, I'll be up in arms. But this happens. Ukraine's going on. This is like back page Wall Street Journal right now because so much shit going on in the world. I don't think this thing has gotten the press that it deserves. So read the article in the journal yourselves. You guys decide. The optics are awful. It would be interesting to see how many unlucky bets he's made over the years. I got to believe it wasn't in the $100 million worth of bet magnitude, but we'll take a look and see if we can figure out. I'll say this. On January 18th, it was four days later, the stock was trading 80 bucks. And then people at home wonder, they say the game is rigged and they see something like this. It's hard for me to argue against that. The game is rigged. There's no way that this was just done as a lucky bet. But hold on, this is going to be the easiest thing on the planet to figure out. Is this the sort of transaction that they engage in all the time? Is this a one-off thing? Why did they do deep in the money? This is one that I don't think anyone needs to get up in arms. It's either going to be something that they do all the time and they just happen to have this sort of takeout. And if it's not, then they're fucking toast. I mean, it's just that simple. This is going to be an open and shut case. Exactly right. They're going to get away with it. This is a perfect rot. It's great. At the end of the day, a bunch of fat cats getting fatter. The only thing I'd say is that this is so obvious if it's insider trading, then the Dillers and the Von Furstenbergs must have needed some money because they came across a tip and they're like, we need the cash. So this stuff doesn't outrage me. This is the sort of crime and grift that goes on all the time. And if they have a great excuse for it, it'll be well documented. If they don't, then they're going to be in trouble. Well, grifters got a grift. But one person that's not a grifter is the great Ben Callow. And when we come back, folks, Ben Callow, Tesla analyst from R.W. Baird. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Ben Callow is Senior Research Analyst at Baird, where he has covered sustainable energy and mobility for more than a decade. Prior to Baird, Ben worked in equity research positions at Stanford Group Company and Pacific Growth Equities, LLC. Some of the companies under his purview include Tesla, SunPower, and First Solar. The man, the myth, the legend, Ben Callow. Danny, what did we used to say when we were on the buy side? And there's some guy who's on the sell side. He's the guy that you need to speak to about a stock or a sector. What did you used to call that guy? The sell side analyst I needed to speak to? Dude, you just fucked it up. You say the axe. He's, the, he's axe. the axe. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Ben Callow has been the axe in the renewable space. As long as I can remember, the renewable space was a space on Wall Street. Ben, welcome to On the Tape. How you doing, buddy? Good. Thanks for having me. Axe is a difficult word because I feel so old covering renewables and Tesla for this long that it's like... Oh, you covered Tesla? I wasn't... (laughs) I I, I say it's dog years. Yeah, it is dog years. You were ESG before ESG was cool, Ben. (laughs) No, I listened to the other podcast where you guys made fun of ESG. Not true. 
We yeah. can get into that. That's true. That's true. That's fake news. No, we're, we're going to get to Tesla. We're going to save the best for last, buddy, okay? Because since that company went public in 2010, I'm sure that's where all those grays started coming in a little bit because it hasn't been an easy road, I don't think, for the company, for Elon, or I think to cover the stock. It's been a really hard stock, and, and Danny's, gonna, Danny's getting in on that one. No, I'm all good. But let's talk about... No, I know you're good. Well, how did Devin, how did you first get into the the renewable space? How did you gravitate towards it? You know, we had Halima Croft on the podcast last week who is an energy strategist. She started uh, working at the CIA in 2001 right after 9/11 and she told this great story about how really the focus then for national security was really about energy security and energy independence, that sort of thing. And so as long as Danny and I have been in the markets, we know that like solar renewables, they've had some fits and starts in a way. How did you gravitate towards that space and tell us a little bit about that road? Because it has not been an easy path for all these companies and all these stocks. So my path was a little more modest than than that. My first job was at Merrill Lynch in Sacramento. And then I cold called every analyst I could find to try to go into the sell side. And I wanted to work in the space because, and this was 2006, I thought this was the next thing. So fast forward uh, 15 years later, and it's still kind of the next thing. Fits and starts is a good word for it because it's been a, a very bumpy road over that time frame. So Ben, from a macro perspective, just looking at the sector, and since you've been covering it as long as anyone have, and had the inkling to pick up coverage and kind of create that for yourself, you're probably one of the first to kind of have that on a large scale basis. You cover everything from Archer Daniels Midland, right, to Tesla, to all these, and they all have different roles in this kind of world. So it's hard to differentiate. You're talking to different portfolio managers and different research analysts on the buy side to talk about it. So Literally, how do you prioritize and keep all that straight when various companies in your coverage are just traded differently and on different things? That seems pretty hard. It's one of the most difficult things for my salespeople to understand, too, is, as my list has evolved. And I think when I joined Baird 14 years ago, next month, you know, my average market cap was half billion dollars. And, you know, I've evolved and I cover materials, I cover ADM, like you said, and all this is kind of coming together. I used to call it food, fuel, and water. And, you know, ADM is doing feedstock for renewable diesel, Bungie the same. But my clients, typically, I gravitate towards PMs versus analysts because I only cover a couple of stocks in like an analyst purview. I wasn't an auto analyst. I knew nothing about the auto industry. And I learned a lot. And some, you know, auto analysts, uh, XYZ mutual fund, wouldn't talk to me because I didn't know anything. Will you be an auto analyst soon enough? Because when you think about some of the targets that these major auto companies, I mean, they are going in your direction, right? It's not like, you know, you're going and doing more work on internal combustion engine automobiles or anything like that. Are you doing more and more work on the big Detroit autos and I guess the Germans, the Japanese, that sort of stuff? We are. And I brought on a partner here. But yeah, the world's coming our way. And it used to be, and Dan, long ago when we first talked, no one believed in EVs, and now it's just kind of commonplace. And so I think a lot of Wall Street's coming that way. I've been out at to see some private companies with other big bulge bracket analysts, and 
now they all they had cells on Tesla. They hated it. They thought it never would happen. And now they they love the space. So now that you bring up Tesla, I don't want to jump ahead, but you know, in all seriousness, it gained profitability and revenue strength on its cars as a auto company selling into a space that they totally have the leading market share in. And so it's hard. You have some analysts out there with sell ratings and targets of 300 that view it as an auto manufacturer. And then you have you and some other people who view it as more of an EV environmental friendly play. And I've always grappled with how do I dream the dream? Because that's really what it is beyond. Because I feel like finally the time that Tesla could grow into its multiple, all this competition is coming. And scale competition, right? is going to come. Being first is great and not going to knock it. But you've had fits and starts with the stock. You've had upgrades on it. You've had downgrades on it. You've maintained objectivity, I think, to a degree. But I think you finally gained comfort, correct me if I'm wrong, when they showed a couple quarters of profitability and you feel like kind of the worst is behind them. But as far as what Dan just mentioned about all the other auto companies coming in, do you think it's going to grow into more of that multiple over time? Or do you think they'll be able to do other things and use their software and this insurance thing, whatever, like, how do you justify kind of a long-term target up 30% from here? What, what, are, what multiples are you using on that? So I've said for a long time that Tesla's five years ahead of competition, and I'll still say it. And we've had a lot of fits and starts with Tesla. And Elon Musk is not an easy CEO when you're an analyst to, to deal with. I'm a meat and potato guy. And I think you can get to valuations where we are right now. And by the way, I was very good until I downgraded at 500 and something. That was the first 500 before the, the split. <laughs> After I went through all of that war, what we're seeing now is the scale they have is much different than everyone else. Everyone else is picking OEM, announcing factories, but these are announcements. You know, Berlin's gonna is online now, I guess, and Austin's online. Elon's going to have the biggest barbecue event in Texas ever here coming up in April. So you got these factories that they learned all the mistakes from, you know, when they're maybe going bankrupt. That's what people say. You got Shanghai and you have the Model Y, which is the highest margin product out there. And the mix in the Model Y is going to continue to increase. And so we're going to see the leverage in the model. And that's not adding in all this stuff like these robots are going to start doing production and all the AI. And, you know, I think Elon tweeted within the last couple of days about how his software engineers don't even understand how strong their, their AI platform is. And so all of that is you know, a big driver of the stock performance already. Now, to your point, if I go back five years ago, and when people were asking, you know, why is it worth $80 billion? And they had to grow into that multiple. Now they grow into it, I think, with all the other stuff out there. The software, AI, going tangential stuff that we don't even know about. In the last conference call, you know, I asked, and I kind of got made fun of. I, I said, Google Labs, I don't know much about Google, but... I said, where's all this R&D money going? And do you guys have like an incubator? And Elon was like, no, we don't, we don't have an incubator. We don't fund anything until it's ready to go. But there's a lot of things out there that I don't think we know from the outside that they're doing. Why do you think that there's such passion? So you obviously believe in 
I mean, you cover the an ESG sector. We all want what's best for the environment, but the other parts of those ESG, the social aspect and the corporate governance, which gets them into a lot of trouble. Why do you think people just let him get away? And not everybody lets him get away. I mean, SEC tries to do things here and there. The NHTSA tries to do things here and there, but it feels like people are just willfully blind to the other things, you know, how he runs his factories, how he treats his employees. It's hard to ignore all that stuff and still give them. And kudos to the shareholders that have, I guess, held on and want to believe in it. But how do you, as an analyst, reconcile and just kind of put that on page 12 of a research report? I'm dead serious. I'm asking an honest question here because you don't cover any other company that has a board like this. You don't cover any other company that has a CEO like this. And I feel like at some point, if these walls come crashing down, it'll be obvious as to why. And I'm not saying it is, but how do you get past all that and just focus on the cars that they're producing? How do you get comfort? So when the stuff was hitting the fan a few years ago, and he was going to save the kids down in the cave in Thailand, and he was fighting with the SEC, and he called the guy a pedo. And then I look at it today, and you know we have a war going on, and he's you know, sending Starlink. And I'm wondering why he does this stuff. Now, I think what he's doing is good in the Ukraine, saying Starlink. But, you know, so some part of me comes back to the pedo incident. And when I woke up that morning and he said that, and then when he was in the fight with the SEC and he put on, you know, Naughty by Nature OPP, uh, like, I'm like, how do I talk to xyz mutual fund about that it's not investable at that point and I, I think there was some guy that downgraded it not investable now i got a long leash here at baird for right or wrong and you know a lot of people had to downgrade the stock because of stuff like that but he's a wild card and in a good way and a bad way and you know i think i think that he also sells cars and that's what he, you know his job is he's a car salesman are you convinced, Ben, that the cars, when you say they're five years ahead of their competitors, I mean, I don't think that's hard for anyone to see, but I had a Mustang Mach-E last year, and this was the $60,000 card from Ford. I, I have to assume that's on the higher end of a lot of their offerings rather than some of their big SUVs. This is a very good car. It was a very well-made car. The torque on this car when you're driving it, it's felt like I, when I've driven Teslas in the past. I actually think it's a much better car pound for pound when I look at the lower end range. So what I'm saying is once the Germans come in in a big way and once the Japanese come in in a way and once the Koreans do and then the American OEMs, when they do what they're really good at with the cars that they sell a shit ton of them and that sort of thing, I just don't see it as that unique anymore. And I also think and I look at their Model S and I say that's the same Model S that I remember hearing about that they were producing the same form factor, if you think, in design for the most part. When the stock was down in the dumps, when we were like contemplating whether it deserves to be worth $50 billion. So I'm just not so convinced from a quality standpoint that they're the car that everyone thinks they're going to be once there's a lot of competition. I'm just curious what you think about that, because again, you're not an auto analyst, but a lot of people that I know that know cars and, and, and have worked in the industry, they don't think they're great cars. A couple of things. So Rivian, my partner covers it. They report, I think, tomorrow night. I don't know when you guys air this, but you know they've had their troubles of, of ramping up in the short term, and you know they have big backers, Amazon, and there's a lot of 
Tesla people, it shows you how difficult it is to do what Tesla has done. I think that Ford probably is one of the, the OEMs that has taken you know, the approach of we have to do this right now. The difficulty is, and this is how you know, Tesla has managed the, the supply chain crisis around semis better than anyone. And because they have a bunch of software engineers, and so they, it scares me. Like I, I don't have a Tesla, but like they'll take out like a semiconductor that goes in your seat and put it in your airbag because like someone redesigns it. And Detroit can't do that; they're not as nimble. Now, you know, Ford just hired two senior engineers from Tesla, and so people don't want to live in Michigan. They say so. Going to Germany, it's they're probably tougher competition. But still, five years ahead because people are trying to figure out batteries, trying to figure out supply chain. This is a big issue is materials. And I think this is an important thing to talk about. Yeah, but they made a million cars last year. And so, like, my point is, is like now if everyone's going after the same materials and they're years ahead of their competition, they're just not years ahead in manufacturing and manufacturing at scale. And, and I'll just say one last thing, because I was just in a Porsche Taycan, a fully electric. OK, this is a $150,000 luxury sedan and Tesla just rolled out their plaid. And I know all these SV fanboys are all excited about that. You tell me how many people pound for pound are going to choose the the Model S Plaid versus a Porsche Taycan for the same exact price. I just don't see it happening. I think that's the one thing. I think you've been right on this stock for a very long time and we're not we, we didn't bring you on here to beat you up about that because being right is right, but when you think about what's happening to Danny's point, it's finally happening. Here it is. Ford. It says they're going to produce more than 2 million electric vehicles by 2026 annually, and they hope to have half of their global sales EV by 2030. GM aims to have 20 EVs available by 2025 as they move to an all-electric fleet or lineup by 2035. Same thing for Honda. Same thing for Mercedes. I mean, it's all happening. So here's a guy who literally had handshake deals to sell the company two times in the last seven years because he couldn't make pay payroll and now everybody's gunning for him and you could tell me that he dealt with the supply chain issues very well during a pandemic but he was the only one looking for those materials ben did you think it was going to be dan coming at you on tesla or me no, see no, I'm, I, the, I'm the nice guy no you guys are good i okay. mean this, this is <laughs> i mean dan said 2035 for someone i was like oh, that's, that's a good point years I hope I'm alive then. <laughs> no, so um, we haven't gotten to the software side of anything. I had a cab that it was a Model 3 today. That's kind of amazing to me. And there's uh, Mach-E's that are in New York as cabs too. The original Tesla statement, and we can talk about market cap because it's big, uh, but the original statement was to electrify the auto industry. And I remember that I used to I used to say it like this: Tesla's funny. They're going to make twenty thousand cars. They can't do it. Tesla made forty thousand cars. That's cute. Tesla made a hundred thousand cars. Shit, we better pay attention to what they're doing. Tesla made five hundred thousand cars. Now we're going to put six billion dollars of capex 
in a battery factory and we got to figure out what the hell we're doing and Tesla's doing. So this year, their CapEx is going to be somewhere like $7 billion, which is their CapEx. Their R&D is another $5 billion. And they're thinking about software, hiring all those engineers. I mean, I wish I was a software engineer. The rest of the auto industry is trying to make make a battery. Ben, isn't it a problem that it's so software-oriented, which is great because all the recalls, however many, I know there's many, many recalls, they're all over-the-air updates, so nobody really pays attention, right? Everybody's like, oh, they don't have to bring a car in. Some of them they do, but most of them they don't. It's over-the-air. But I don't think you'll see the U.S. OEMs rush into something where they believe they either make the car unsafe because, Ben, to be clear, some of these recalls are needed desperately because the cars aren't safe. And then to promote full self-driving that does not exist, I think you would agree, and just to just kind of bully you know, the street and people into willing this thing to be what it is. And when you were downgrading it at 500 pre-split, I was shorting it at 500 pre-split. I think I stood up that day and couldn't have been more excited that the axe in the name is Dan Collins has finally come on board. I mean, and I think about it with the stock at 800, 700, wherever it's going to land, that's at 4,000. So, I mean, believe me, that's that's not lost to me, but I want to bring it back. And I have a serious question about the industry. I want to pull it back from Tesla for a second. And I can't ever get complete clarity on this. How much energy does it use on the grid to charge these cars? Because I feel like there's a disconnect between it's good for the environment, and but here you are plugging it in. And if your local electric utility uses coal, your local, we know, whatever it might be, nat gas, et cetera, what is the economic comparison there? Do you, did you run that? I'm sure you've, you've looked at that. It's a great question, and I'm smiling because you guys are so good at what you do. So think about it's it's like the most important question that no one's talking about. And this is where the opportunity is to make money. So one Tesla is like half a house. So we're going to add a half a house for each house. Unless you have two Teslas, then we're going to add a house. So you mean to maintain power to it? For the electricity draw. Right. Okay. And so if you get areas like I live in San Francisco, Westchester County, wherever, you know, where you see all those Teslas. And this is another thing we can talk about, like differentiation, why someone would buy like a Taycan. But, you know, you put all these things together and the grid has to be updated. And that's where the money can go. Who wins that? Is it maybe utilities, the distributed solar companies, generator companies, but you're going to need to, because it's not like overall grid, rehauls but in these areas they go first now if we go into the uk and europe there has to be a lot of new infrastructure but ben just to follow up on that so just i hear what you're saying it does take a lot of power but if the source of power for those local utilities is coal is it really that beneficial to the environment i'm not singling out tesla at all here i'm talking about the industry in general because i know you i know you cover cool companies i think you cover grid right yeah Look, there's two things. One, I don't think people are buying Teslas because they want to save the world. I mean, some people do, but people want to buy them because they drive fast and you know they got like their little keyboard there thing on the, on the side. But I think only like, probably like the studies say like twenty percent, fifteen percent are tree huggers. Tree hugger? Do we have to redefine tree hugger? Are you calling me a tree hugger because I got a Ford Mustang Mach-E last year? No, I'm a, I, look, I, I'm a tree hugger. I want to answer Danny's question because he asked me twice. 
So, you know, 25% of U.S. electricity is produced by coal at this time. You know, when I first started out, I had more hair. I was slimmer. It was probably 60%. And it's mostly natural gas has, has changed that. And so it is a good question. Like there's, I'm sure, you know, in Chicago, you're driving around your Tesla. It's being powered by coal in a lot of cases. And I think the mission statement two or three of Tesla is, you know, to bring renewables on on board. You know, what's interesting, though, from a consumer standpoint. And again, I, I will say that I did turn in the keys. I was like Jerry Seinfeld in that episode with the stink in his BMW. I just literally gave the keys away. I just got rid of it because one of my huge issues was, Ben, the range on the thing, the way they kind of advertise the range, battery usage from heat or AC or that sort of thing. And then living in an urban area where it's not really that easy to charge, it was really difficult. And, you know, it was interesting, a prominent VC, don't take my word for it, Fred Wilson of USV actually earlier this week wrote a blog post on his widely followed blog, and it was called the Range Anxiety Weekend. He went on a trip in his Tesla, and then a friend of his went on the same trip with him in a Volvo EV, and the, just the nightmare of charging and, and kind of organizing your time around when you can charge on a long trip, that sort of thing. I, I just think that's really interesting. It was also kind of talking about, I think his main point was that there also needs to be industry standards away from Tesla. And, you know, that's one thing I'm just curious your take on. If there is a standard and it's obviously evolving on the on the charging front, doesn't that, if there's a global network that's not Tesla on the charging front and, and the components in which you charge, doesn't that run a huge risk for Tesla also? Funny story is uh, someone that worked at Tesla, I don't want to get in trouble, but uh, I was meeting him at a Packers game and he was driving to the game and he sent me a picture and this was in 2014 of his Model S, and he was driving 55 miles an hour. And I didn't understand why he was saying that. But that's because he was trying to keep his range to go. And he had to plug it in. There was an argument over a hotel where we were staying, where he could plug it in. Things have changed with charging now. It's, it's much more available. I think that you know all the OEMs have their own strategy to build out networks. Tesla's done their own thing, whether it's you know, the supercharger or the destination charger. And I think that, you know, as batteries progress, it really on cost is a big thing. And, and next generation batteries too. But really right now, I, I think you're starting to push in motors too is something that people don't think about a lot. But as the whole technology progresses, you know, you start pushing that 400 mile range. And I think that's probably good enough for most of us. I'm going to guess that Packer fans was not Jim Chanos, but I'm just going to guess that's not who you were with. But seriously, I think right now in general on Wall Street, research analysts, people, <laughs> not even in the EV sector, in all sectors, I think you have analysts and portfolio managers asking what the bottom in some of these stocks are and what should they do. And I was on the sell side for years at Oppenheimer and I was an institutional equity salesperson for Henry Blodgett to Steve Eisman. I think Steve was the one that really told it like it was. And Blodgett made a name for himself covering a space that was kind of emerging, almost similar to electric vehicle stocks in the day in terms of what was going to happen with the internet. But the reason I'm asking this is because I find how misguided sometimes, well, listen, if you're on the sell side and you're short and you're wrong, you lose your job. That's like rule number one. We all, we all know. But more importantly, having these companies and bankers 
convince the analysts, not you at all, I'm not talking about Baird or anything, that certain stocks should fall under their coverage versus others. I'm sure you've gotten calls from your bankers. Hey, Ben, you want to pick this up? You're like, well, it's really not, you know, it's really because they want to get the multiple. I'm seeing it happen right now in specialty finance companies that are platforms that are the upstarts of the world, the affirms on the buy now, pay later are being covered by technology analysts. And so that is a complete, um, I wouldn't say the word disgrace, but a real kind of misguided. I, I really think it causes confusion and shame on the buy side analysts and portfolio managers. They can do their own work and probably most of them can figure that out. But I think there's a still like a conflict that exists in general in a different form that we saw after Glass-Steagall and all that stuff happened. I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on that in general. No, it's, it's awesome. And hopefully no VCs are listening to this ever, but you know they push it a lot. And everyone wants to be a SaaS company. And you sell to utilities. This company's been bought. Oh, power I covered. And, you know, they're a SaaS company. You know, they stuff mailers to reduce people's energy usage. And they kind of shame people because, like, your neighbor is using less energy than you. And they didn't want me to cover them because they want SaaS analysts. And they don't want someone like it's an energy analyst to cover them. And, you don't know if it quacks like a duck and waddles like a duck. It's a duck, I guess. They learned the hard way. The third quarter they were out, or fourth or whatever, of being public, you know, they ran to a public utility commission issue in a, in a couple areas, and people were like, what's a public utility commission? <laughs> and I said, hey, guys, you're going to get downgraded by three analysts. And there was probably four analysts to downgrade them, but... But yeah, I mean, I think that's what we have to be all be wary of, just because there's so much going on in renewables and energy, batteries, EVs. We got SPACs, stuff coming to the market, and we have to cipher through all of it. And and a lot of it's uh, framed in in very polished ways when it's difficult businesses. Well, listen, Ben Callow, you do it in a very thoughtful way, and we really appreciate your time. I think, you know, Danny and I were coming in a little hot here, buddy, on one of your strong buy-rated names, but you've been right. And again, I use that term axis started out. Uh, you and I have been friends a long time. I've followed your work for even longer before we've been friends, and you're very thoughtful and you're extraordinarily good at it. So we appreciate you coming on the tape. We hope you come back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. And I swear, Ben, Tesla was like the last thing on my list that I wanted to get to. I wanted to talk about Georgia football versus Alabama football. Oh, we're gonna have to geez. we're gonna have to come back for another time on that. But uh I really appreciate it. Well, you know it what I have time. to say with that? Roll tie. Yeah. How about them dogs? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.